Uh, We are about a third of the way through that series. It's called Verily, on courageous knowing and living. Uh, We typically just work through books of the Bible, but we'll stop about once a year to uh, cover a topic of some kind. And so currently we are exploring what the Bible has to say about truth and knowing. Uh, What is the truth? Can we know it? And can we be confident enough in what we know to tell others? Uh, Today is where the story gets confusing, though, uh, because today we're going to consider sin's effect on our ability to know the truth. Uh, How did the fall of Adam and Eve affect our ability to know? Uh, And the answer will ultimately be not an answer, but a lament. Uh, Sin is confusing and tragic. Uh, The problem of evil always haunts Christian teaching uh, because evil haunts the world. Uh, Andrew Davison wrote, the metaphysics of Christian theology is supremely offended by evil, for which it can provide no account. Evil will always resist understanding. Any philosophical or theological scheme that claims to have explained evil would have come too close to explaining it away, which would be unworthy of human experience. And so as we enter this morning, let's be sobered, um, not looking for a quick fix. I feel like so much of our uh, cultural warring and political warring is, is because people f- have feel like they've found the answer to evil, uh, and they have these really simplistic answers. Um, but as Christians, we, uh, we hold a, a middle um, of lament and grief and um, offense uh, by what it is. Kayla will be reading our scripture this morning from Isaiah 44 and uh, verses 9 through 20. Kayla, you, you look great. Uh, the part of Kayla today will be played by Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here it goes. <clears throat> Our scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. (laughs) And the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, 
Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it both honors us and exposes us. That in your word, we are dignified uh, with the image of God and the marvel that is humanity uh, as ironsmiths and carpenters, um, as technologists, as artists, as creatives, as mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. There are so many beautiful and wonderful things about being human. And yet there is the presence of sin and it confounds us. Thank you for being honest with us and not leaving us in our sin, uh, not settling for a wounded and broken humanity, uh, but also not throwing us away. Father, we pray as we consider sin and knowing that we would come at this topic um, humbly and open to correction and rebuke, um, but also give us hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I had a hard time settling on a text for this morning's sermon on knowing and sin because it's tough to figure out how to boil it all down. Um, and I actually considered for a brief second the famous pair of verses in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, uh, which say, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Do answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Uh, what do you do in the face of foolishness? Uh, how do you respond effectively to sin's effects on the human race? Uh, it's almost uh, impossible. Uh, to figure it out. How can we even understand sin? Sin is confusing because it is the rejection of reality. Uh, recently, I was uh, arguing with one of my kids, and I thought to myself, this is like living with the world's most passionate, most incompetent lawyer, right? Uh, <laughs> middle and high schoolers, they love arguing. Uh, they are hypersensitive to injustice, uh, but they often just completely disregard logic and reason, and so it's just a pretty difficult situation to figure out how to work through. Um, we expect that from teenagers, though. That's part of learning. That's part of uh, growing and maturing. Uh, but most of us have also been in relationships with adults that are like that, adults who refuse to see reality. What everyone else seems to see, they don't see. Um, I don't know if you have been in a relationship like that, a relationship where you just can't win. Uh, no matter how you set the objectives, uh, the goals you're aiming for, it is a lose-lose situation. There is no reasoning with them. There is no pacifying them. There is no containing them. Uh, I preached a sermon uh, many years ago from the Proverbs on friendship, and I rarely remember my sermons, but this one has stuck with me, the, the reflection, um, the realization, as I... Uh, taught from the Proverbs the types of people you should not be friends with. Uh, and 
I refer to it in pastoral counseling a lot, how friendship with the fool is impossible. It, it is an unworkable relationship because you cannot work with someone who consistently rejects reality. And to be clear, the fool is not uh, in scripture like a child. Uh, children are not foolish. The Proverbs actually have two words uh, for people. Uh, you have for children and people like them, they are gullible or simple. And so the Proverbs often talk about the simple person, but it's always with an invitation to leave their simpleness. So Proverbs 9, 6, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Uh, children and teenagers and you and me in so many areas of our life are gullible. Uh, we're simple, which is to say that we are impressionable, we are teachable, we are changeable, but also temptable. And so we have to be careful. Fools, on the other hand, in Scripture, are fixed in their foolishness. Uh, there are certain truths that they refuse to see. Uh, that's the difference between the gullible and the fool. The gullible are on the fence between wisdom and foolishness, whereas the fool has chosen where he wants to be. And sadly, in the Proverbs, nothing can be done for them. Uh, Proverbs 27, 22, crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Uh, Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And even when consequences inevitably come, rather than own their foolishness, rather than their eyes being opened to themselves and to the truth, the fool blames God. Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Until the fool is able to own his own foolishness, it's an unworkable situation for everyone else, which is why it's an impossible relationship. Uh, you can't fix it, and so all you can really do is minimize the damage until you're able to get out. Sometimes answering the fool according to his folly, sometimes answering him not according to his folly, but just trying to uh, work with the chaos. Foolishness is a good descriptor for sin's effect on our ability to know. There are many metaphors for sin, uh, but when it comes to knowledge, I think foolishness is helpful. Sin is foolish. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, notice how the fool's problem isn't that he doesn't understand wisdom and instruction. He understands just fine. The problem is he despises knowledge. He hears the truth and rejects, rejects it. He's deceitful about his ignorance. So Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But because his problem is not innocence, it's not simpleness, but it is, it is deceit, he is ultimately responsible for his foolishness. Uh, committed ignorance is a chosen path. The classic text for sin's effect on knowing is Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so for Paul, the first decision sin makes in the pursuit of sin is the suppression of truth. And not just any truth, but the truth of God. 
Romans 1, 19 through 21, for what can be known about God is plain to mankind because God has shown it to them. That's what we've seen in these last uh, few weeks on truth in creation. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. According to scripture, you cannot live on the earth and deny the reality of God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You cannot deny the reality of God unless you stop your ears. To deny God requires suppression. Uh, Romans 1 is in many ways Paul's expansion and interpretation of the Genesis account, uh, particularly the fall of Adam and Eve. And so if you remember last week when we were in Genesis 2, the crescendo of the creation account was Adam and Eve naked and unashamed. Where in his freedom and joy, Adam maybe didn't have a complete knowledge of good and evil represented in the tree, but he knew truly knew the truth of God. Being naked and unashamed is Adam's complete and total satisfaction with the truth of God. There was a a unity between his exterior and his interior. He was satisfied with the truth of God, and not only the truth of God, but the truth of Adam's own createdness lived out in the sight of God's gracious love for him. In standing naked without shame before God, before Eve, with himself, embracing his complete visibility, he was embracing the truth. It's a beautiful scene. And so how do you get from naked and unashamed in Genesis 2 to hiding in Genesis 3? Like, what happens there? You can only get there by suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Adam and Eve must somehow absurdly deny everything they've ever seen everything they've heard, everything they've experienced from God. Uh, Daniel Strange writes, God is portrayed as being not benevolent, for he is motivated by envy. His words are neither truthful nor effective. You will not die. The serpent entices Eve and Adam into disbelieving the truths about God that Genesis 1 and 2 have clearly established and that Adam and Eve have witnessed experientially since their own creation. This picture of God as a liar, envious, full of ill will, is completely opposite Adam and Eve's experience. They have no reason to believe the serpent. It's utter foolishness, and so why do they do it? Uh, Greg Elshoff has a book on self-deception with a great title. It's called I Told Me So, and he defines self-deception this way. He says, I am deceiving myself if I'm managing my beliefs with no regard for the truth. Adam and Eve were managing their beliefs without regard for the truth. The truth was not of utmost importance to them. Because, like Satan, they had become discontent with the truth. They didn't like the truth. They didn't like their true place in the universe. 
And so Obadiah 3 says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. What has deceived them? Their pride. They didn't like the truth. They wanted the truth to be different than it was, and so they pushed it down. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And in so doing, by denying the truth of God's words, it created an opening for disobedience, where disobedience in this false world suddenly became a reasonable option. It gave cognitive room for Adam and Eve to justify their disregard for God, for what God is envious of his creatures, what God lies. Suppressing the truth allowed them to be unimpressed by God, to be unintimidated by him, and foolishly think that there might be space for them alongside him or even maybe above him. Genesis 3, 4 through 6, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Things, of course, did not work out as planned because you can imagine whatever you want about God, uh, but he, by definition, remains the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Uh, Satan, on the other hand, is the father of lies. Uh, he is a chaos agent. In sinning, humanity became his children. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You don't want to hear me. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, we all know from experience that one lie usually leads to another, right? You get caught uh, in lies. And so in order to maintain our false belief, we are going to have to lie more, more and more. Uh, the 18th century theologian uh, Bishop Butler believed that the self-flattering forms of self-deception explain a great deal of the wickedness that we encounter in the world. And Paul confirms this at the end of Romans 1. He has this huge list of vices that spring forth from suppressing the truth. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Denying God is literally maddening. It makes you mad. Sin is maddening. You can never truly understand evil. All you can do is reject it. But Adam and Eve refused to come clean. 
and instead resort to self-appeasement. They resort to a religious performance. Um, the first effective sin on Adam and Eve um, is a religious expression. The eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so, as we mentioned last week, immediately upon sinning, Adam and Eve hide, not just from God, but from their own bodies. Um, they don't want to see themselves, even. Uh, it's why Paul in Romans 1 connects uh, worship and uh, sexuality, worship and bodies, because they're linked together. Uh, they're reality. Uh, because their bodies, as created, as given to them, are undeniable evidence of God, they can't bear to see it anymore. Uh, evidence of his wisdom, his power, his authority, his goodness, his love. Um, Oliphant, uh, an apologist, writes, After the fall, the image of God becomes a source of shame. Our visceral reaction to who we are as image, including the presence of God ever before us, is to hide and suppress whatever we can of that image. Though the image itself remains, because that is who we essentially are, it has been fractured and broken because of sin. Thus we would, if we could, hide from God, and we make it our goal to construe the world in such a way that we would not have to face him. Um, interestingly, Adam and Eve use creation to hide from creation, which is always really a, a fascinating point. Uh, there was an article in the Jewish Review of Books this fall about the story of how the forbidden fruit became an apple. Like, how did we come to know that it was an apple, which we don't know is an apple. The Bible uses a generic word for fruit in Genesis 2 and 3, and that probably actually protected humanity from thinking that the problem was a specific plant um, as opposed to just us. We're the problem, not apples or figs or grapes or whatever it might be. Um, the forbidden fruit became an apple in the late Middle Ages because there was a similarity of language between the Latin and the French. But I learned that the earliest art for centuries depicted the forbidden tree as either a grapevine or a fig tree, um, because that's the primary fruits in the ancient um, Middle East, right? Um, there aren't apples anywhere um, over there. And so the reason for thinking the forbidden fruit was a fig, though, was because Adam grabs fig leaves to cover himself. And so that's, that's the first fruit that's associated. We know there must have been a fig tree. And that's a striking image to me, to think that Adam used leaves from the very tree that corrupted him to cover his shame. To hide from God using the very law he broke. Just like we can use empty religion, fig leaves, to cover real disobedience, to hide our shame. The fig leaves were humanity's first post-fall religious expression, an attempt to use a performance to justify oneself. As humanity progressed, though, this religious impulse would only get more and more complex. Uh, once God's demoted, uh, it creates room for more gods alongside him, and so gods just keep multiplying um, into the thousands, right? Uh, the text that, Kay that not Kayla, Hamilton read, uh, highlights the conundrum of sin's effects on man. Um, the reason that I ended up settling on this text is because the reality is that humans still know a whole lot of stuff. And that's what can be so hard when we think about sin's effects on knowing, is humans are brilliant 
in so many ways, in science, in medicine, in technology, government, psychology, arts, and music, and literature, humanity never ceases to impress. Um, I think it was Carl Sagan that said, the human brain is the most advanced technology in the entire universe. It's baffling when you think about all that the brain accomplishes. And in Isaiah 44, you have two highly skilled workers, an ironsmith and a carpenter. Think about the knowledge and power required to complete their tasks. It's amazing. Isaiah 44, 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. Um, Tony Ranke makes the point that during the Iron Age, when Isaiah was written, the ironsmith would have been at the cutting edge of human achievement. He would have been the Elon Musk of the ancient East, doing things that no one had ever done before. The carpenter, more old school, an artisan, um, but his work is still highly skilled. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it go strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. This, could be a, this passage could be a celebration of humanity. It becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. It's a tragic turn. But from beginning to end, idolatry requires a significant deal of intelligence and ingenuity. After the fall, though, our knowing becomes weaponized for false faith. Humanity is still created in God's image. We continue to wield tremendous creative power, speak and make like God speaks and makes. We can know things, truly know them. We can make things. We can do things. But because of our deep desire to suppress the truth of God, we're constantly filtering out God's presence in reality. We're avoiding the clear truth of his goodness and power. And this doesn't mean that we refuse to know anything. We can still know lots of stuff. But we twist our knowledge like fig leaves and woodworking to cover our shame. Uh, for the prophet Isaiah, idolatry is laughable. He's mocking it uh, plainly in Isaiah 44. Paul 2, Isaiah 44, 18 through 20. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, 
A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Romans 1.22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so idolatry makes no sense whatsoever. But the thing is, once you remove the one true God, the world no longer makes sense. And so historians of religion, when they talk about religious religions and myths like trying to make sense of the world that's a real thing without god like how do we make sense of existence we can't we can't make sense of it particularly those features of the world tied to humanity because what is the image of god without god right it's a mirror with nothing to reflect there's nothing to reflect it's just an empty frame Without faith in God, everything we think we know about ourselves begins to fall apart. And this is really a mercy. It is God shedding light on our foolishness. He's answering a fool according to his folly. Um, Two articles recently, Stanford professor Robert Sapolsky, I don't know if you saw this on Apple News, it sort of came up because it's local, he's at Stanford. Um, He just published a book uh, making the biological case against free will. Um, And the L.A. Times uh, profiled him. After more than 40 years studying humans and other primates, Sapolsky has reached the conclusion that virtually all human behavior is as far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure, the division of cells, or the beating of our hearts. And this means accepting that a man who shoots into a crowd has no more control over his fate than the victims who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It means treating drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians just like drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack and veer out of their lane. Uh, This is a quote from him. The world is really screwed up and made much, much more unfair by the fact that we reward people and punish people for things they have no control over. We've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. And so without God... When you try to look at the world and and inspect it closely against everything we feel, against any prospect of knowing the truth, goodness, beauty, justice, without God, free will is not real. It cannot be sustained. Similarly, uh, listen to a podcast, an interview recently of Dr. Hoffman. He's a cognitive neuroscientist. I think he's at UC Davis now. And he believes that according to the best evolutionary science, what we think we know and see is not actual reality. Uh, Conscious beings have not evolved to perceive the world as it actually is because evolution is not motivated by the truth. Instead, we have evolved to perceive the world in a way that maximizes fitness payoffs. Everything we see is not real. He talks about it as a user interface of the real world. So like a computer screen manipulating a screen, manipulating me to think that I'm reading the news or FaceTiming with you or whatever, it's actually just a thousand electrical impulses on a microchip. Like it's not, I'm not actually looking at you. He thinks that that is the world. And, and you know, as a non-scientist, I'm just going to have to assume all this guy's math is correct. Like he talks about it being in the math. He claims it's in the data. 
okay? And, and I think I get what he's saying. Because if you pause, you really have to believe that there is truly an unfathomable distance between my mind and you people, right? It is incomprehensible, the conversions that have to happen between uh, you and me, for me to know you and you to know me. What does it mean for me to see you in this room, materially speaking? It's mind-boggling. You are frequencies of light, like bouncing off of you, hitting my eyeballs, interpreted, converted into electrical chemical messages, and then somehow read by my brain slash mind. It is mind-blowing to think about that. And if that weren't enough, what are you really? On one level, you are a crowd of people, people that I know, persons that I love, but then you are also like a system of organs, your cells, your molecules, your atoms, electrons, protons, light, empty space. And so given all that, what is a person? How can I be confident in what I see and know? The truth is I cannot be confident in anything without something or someone grounding, not just my knowledge, but my very existence. That's how I can believe what I see. That's how I can believe in free will, in the person that I am, because God holds it together. That's how I can justify the dignity that I see in you simply for being human. But when I don't believe in God, when I suppress the truth of God, I unwittingly suppress the truth of myself. If Jesus is right in John 17, 3, that eternal life is knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, then refusing to know God can only mean eternal death. There is no other source of life. This is a admittedly discouraging sermon, right? To see how pride led to a denial of the truth and then the loss of everything. That the world and we see this in Genesis 3 through 11, it just begins spinning out of control. And we see that all the time, and, and we read the news, we um, go to counselors and therapists, like all these things, but there is something that is just confusing, achingly confusing about the world, where it just doesn't make sense. Why do people do the things that they do. Romans 7, why do I do the things that I do? Like, what is going on in me? What is the principle at work? Whether you're a Christian or not, to be human is to be very familiar with suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, with managing our beliefs with no regard for the truth, valuing something else over the truth. We all know people who go to great lengths to deny reality, who refuse to believe what is plain to everyone else. We also know ourselves. We know the truths that we avoid, right? That we have gone to great lengths to deny. We know nations, societies, cultures, which have collectively denied obvious moral truths, who have justified unspeakable evil for their own gain. Our own history includes examples of such atrocities as well as our present. It's discouraging. But it is 
hopeful that we're discouraged, honestly. It is good to be confused, to lament and grieve and rage, to feel afresh that there is something deeply wrong with the world. Because in our discouragement, in our despair, we are remembering, hearkening back to something of our original goodness in Genesis 2. That it is still present, a goodness which still remains the prospect of being naked and unashamed. That's why God placed enmity between us and the serpent in Genesis 3, to keep us still grieving, to keep us connected to the goodness that is at our core. I have to admit I never paid much attention to the beginning of Genesis 3.15 until this week. I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, I always jump to the end of that verse. Um, It's the earliest promise of redemption in scripture when God promises immediately upon our sin. He doesn't hesitate at all. It's the first thing that he says. He promises to send a righteous son to do what Adam and Eve failed to do, to crush the serpent. But before he promises to send his son, Jesus, God first puts enmity between Satan and Eve, between his children and hers. And if we take that at face value, I guess that means that the enmity wasn't guaranteed, that God had to place it in Adam and Eve's heart. Maybe without God putting enmity between us and Satan, maybe we would have just gone all in on hatred and death and said, I'm with the serpent double or nothing, don't care. And that's what it looks like Adam and Eve are going to do, doesn't it? Adam never shows any sort of humility. He never asks for forgiveness. He doesn't plead for mercy. He is entirely resistant to God's loving interest in him. Adam Adam could have been, we could have been like the fallen angels before us, unredeemably evil. And indeed, we have witnessed some humans who come very close to that. Some stories are just awful. But mercifully, God places in humanity a barrier, enmity between the children of the serpent and the children of Eve. He places in humanity a heart that though broken, still cries out for justice, that still rages against violence, that still works for life, that still has babies and forms communities, that still creates and studies and invents, that still imagines and paints and sings and loves, a heart that yearns for the original goodness we were created with. That's why Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, that they might long to come back, but to come back in the right way. Exile for them is both a judgment and a mercy. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. How awful it would have been for them to continue living forever in that state 
Without physical death, Eden would have become hell on earth. But by casting humanity out of the garden, by making humanity suffer, some of us will call out to him for rescue. This is what Paul tells the philosophers in Athens. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects you worshipped, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And so that altar to the unknown God was the Greek way of seeking after and reaching for, feeling their way toward God, feeling their way back to the Garden of Eden. And Paul comes with the good news, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That life that you sense, that hope that you feel, that love that you share, it is God. It is the presence of God. He is near you. You are his offspring. He is pointing to you your original goodness and calling you back. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in unrighteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do not hide from him any longer. Do not run from him. Turn and face him and tell the truth. There are two ways to address shame. Two ways that Adam could have addressed shame. He could have thrown himself on the mercy of God, and we know that God is merciful. Or he did what he did, which is to recover his dignity, to cover it up through lies. How can we be forgiven? Uh, earlier, I mentioned that one of the earliest supposed forbidden fruits uh, was figs because of the fig leaves. The other most common guess was grapes. Um, and that's the one uh, I prefer because grapes make wine and wine eventually represent Christ's blood and communion. Christ was cursed by the tree that cursed us. Adam could not pay for his sin. He could not put the fruit back even though in taking it, he immediately knew that he couldn't fix it and, and sort of put it back. And so Christ, with his blood, repaid the fruit by being nailed to that tree in our place. In our sin, we tested the knowledge of good and evil through disobedience, tasted it. God tasted the same tree through suffering. And now in Christ, we eat from both trees the bread and the wine, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, together, ours forever, because of grace. And God promises 
that as we do this every day, he will build Eden around us again. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask for humility and courage to face the truth. To face the truth about you, to face the truth about ourselves, to face the truth about the world, but to do so with hope. Not because of anything that we can do, but because mercifully we are still created in the image of God. You are unchanging. You created the world good, very good. You are powerful and wise. You are gracious and merciful, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to remember and see that Satan and sin, Satan is the father of lies. There is no truth in him, not any at all. But you are truth. Jesus is truth. Help us to hold fast to you. When we're confused, when evil doesn't make sense, when our own hearts don't make sense, help us to hold fast to you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.